TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. There's a new ad campaign for Welch's grape juice, and they're trying to like make it more magical. I saw that. It scared the crap out of me. <laughs> they're and like, I feel antioxidants like... to fight the man. <laughs> Welch's grape juice. I'm like, they used to have a little cute kid when I yeah, was younger. Right. Welch's grape juice. Like, now, <laughs> now it's like a Dodge Ram commercial. <laughs> yeah. More power. Right? More grace. That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> and a tailgate. <laughs> He's never seen it. <laughs> Some dudes out they, duck, they took duck. it out of the plastic bottle and put it in metal <laughs> it, just, it does not even seem like a nourishing satisfying thing to have i'm gonna go out and chop some wood let me drink my grape juice but the grapes <laughs> in the can change color when it's the right temperature you know what grape <laughs> juice for a man is called wine motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication podcast that's hip deep in the Pepto. I've got five owner like Ben Folds. I've got more tail than that Petco. You faker than some sweet and low. Yeah, you got some silverware, but really, are you eating though? On today's episode, an activatable crisper Cass, James Watson's tarnished legacy, and being Milo Ventimiglia's body double. Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication podcast that won't be affected by a $15 minimum wage <laughs> because none of us are getting paid. <laughs> with me on the show today with a Master's of Arts with concentration in journalism for the, from the University of Memphis, comedian Doug Gillen. Welcome Hello, to the show. good to be here. With ongoing studies in engineering technologies and a former avionics technician in the Navy, stuntman Lee Gifford. Welcome Howdy. to the show. And with a Bachelor's in Chemistry from Arkansas State University, chemist. Jim Farris, welcome to the show. Thank you. And of course, relegated to the producer's desk today, uh, co-host Niraj Trivedi. Wait, was that about not being paid? <laughs> <laughs> You're so, furloughed. We all just found out. <laughs> There's a shutdown. There's a shutdown, <laughs> Niraj. That's the excuse. For the last six months. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe this anymore. <laughs> so, so Lee, you are the first stuntman I've ever met. Uh, I didn't... Re- I, I, thinking about it, it is a job. And so <laughs> it's, it's not just a fun camp that we go to. <laughs> so I want to hear more about that. What got you into becoming a stuntman? I'd be quite honest with you. Um, I think like a lot of things in life, failure motivates you to, to try something else. And uh, I was I was in sales for, for a couple of years and um, had a series of personal failures and just kind of let the career go by. So I realized this just wasn't for me. I, I shouldn't have been there. I wasn't happy. The company, I wasn't happy with going to a desk and sitting there and typing out emails every day. So I just kind of figured out what I wanted to do with my life. And I grew up in theater. I grew up in sports. I'm a former Division One athlete. And um, I was a cheerleader, so I have a gymnastics background. I looked at that, and I'm like, what What makes the most sense? I mean, if you put all that together, stunts made the most sense for me. And um, it, I thought it would make me happy. I pursued it, went to training for it call it school people think you're like certified you're not certified it's just it's it's just basically training you accumulate training over time you pick up that's why i started at the international stunt school in seattle and went from there hustled my way up and got a few gigs out in hollywood and just it's an ongoing process every day mm-hmm. that's 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 pretty great are you and you're in memphis at the moment but you're heading back out to la in the next few weeks i'll right? be gone in uh, six days yeah the 20th i fly back right I've, Got an open call at Universal Studios for a uh, live action gig. Oh, great! And uh, how how 
often do stunt jobs get posted? So stunt jobs do not get posted. Um, it's different from acting. Um, mm. We are in the same union. I'm in the Screen Actors Guild. They're in the Screen Actors Guild. You know, maybe Tom Cruise makes a lot more money than the guy on you know NBC's maybe, maybe right? <laughs> the guy on NBC's new sitcom. But uh, actors go to casting calls. They go through agents. They have you know they have series of different ways to get those roles and be looked at by producers, directors, etc. I have I'm at the whim of a stunt coordinator. That's it. He is the end all, or she is the end all, be all for my job. You solicit these, solicit these people privately. Um, you you do so respectfully and generally when asked to do so. So you have to be present. You have to be on set. You have to be eager. You have to get around them and just uh, hopefully one of them is okay with giving you their email or you get that from a service that tells you their emails. But then you're un, you're unsoliciting. Mm-hmm. You're soli- you're sending unsolicited and that emails. might like annoy right. them. It's it's generally it's just known as a family business from the get go. I mean, you're talking about the early stunt guys were Chaplin, Buster Keaton. And then on down the line, they started getting circus performers, family acts. And this, these are closely guarded jobs, and they're, they're not readily available jobs. So it's just uh, it's a very delicate process. And I think getting your name out there and being known as a safe stunt person and uh, somebody who's easy to work with, pleasant to be around, is eventually people start calling you. That's yeah. So it's, it's different. It's a, very, it's a different way of looking at things. And, I um, mean, every, every job's a new job. It's a new company every time. Do you ever wish that Heroes was still on? Because I don't know if uh, right. if Doug and Jimmy, you're the spitting image of Milo Ventimiglia. Right, right. So you just, anytime he had to fall off a building or or shoot a gun underwater or something, like you'd, they'd be like, hey, man, get up here. I have to be honest with you. Do you get that a lot? Once a week. Once a week? <laughs> yeah. Uh, since This Is Us came out, I get it once a week. And I, I, I worked on This Is Us. And I, I worked directly with him and I didn't, it wasn't a stunt contract. It was a, it was a, so it was an extra, extra role at a special day rate for people with uh, experience in that area. So they hired, <laughs> so it, there, there's a lot of stuff going on in Hollywood, different guys, they hire different kinds of rates they pay. So they pay about 200 bucks a day for something like that. And oh, I was like, this cool. is us. Cool. It was a Vietnam show that aired uh, not, not long episode in Vietnam and right. went out there. And I mean, he's about two and a half inches shorter than I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he seemed like, I seemed like the nicest person in the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, I get it a lot. And, uh, <laughs> that is helpful for getting a job. But, you know, those are again, relationships you would have to build with a performer, um, or with a casting director or a producer that knows the performer. I mean, it's, it's, not a job that anyone's going to be like, we're holding auditions for Milo Ventimiglia's stunt double. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, uh, Auditions. Could you imagine? (laughs) There'd be like seven foot tall blonde guys showing up. I think I I got a chance. Yeah, right. (laughs) All of us would be there. (laughs) Why are we even wasting our time? The guy's in line. It's the one guy. He's right there. We can literally see him changing age before our eyes. The story takes different turns. That's the guy Ooh, next <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh no he um that type of stuff is is definitely something that i i'm trying to do i mean there's other guys you don't even really have to look just like him i mean counter reeves is somebody who's around my height same hair same kind of kind of look you could do that because they don't want to see your face you know for the most right. part it's not you know they don't want to see this like the fact that i look just like him honestly when i worked on the show it's a true story one of the assistant directors came over to me and told me, please, you just keep your, your helmet on. And we're wearing the Vietnam, you know, the, the, the bucket helmet, the actual, the actual, <laughs> you know, I was in the Navy. We didn't wear those things. Um, and, and he's like, can you just kind of put that down? And I looked at him. I'm like, you're asking me to do that because, because I look like, like me. He's like, yeah, 
that. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, that's great. Thanks. So it was really, it was a detriment to me that day. I didn't care because I was just happy to be there and be on a big production that was really cool to watch and experience that you get from being around those kind of people is great. But I didn't care if he saw my face, but he didn't want me to. So I, maybe they wouldn't want me to be a stunt double because they'd be afraid that, I don't know. I don't <laughs> that, know. that the camera would just be drawn. They'd be like. <laughs> but no, it, it, it's, all, it's all kind of funny. And, you know, if maybe one day I get to hang out with them, maybe, you know, maybe it could work. Go to some bars together, really mess with some people's heads oh yeah just just switch places were you just shorter no no <laughs> now uh now doug yeah comedian memphis yeah uh you've been doing a lot you've actually been working with uh, me and will a lot recently yeah uh, with yeah. our comic comedians project can you tell us what's going on in memphis comedy right now uh, a lot a lot we got a lot of independent showcases mostly at breweries because uh drinking makes jokes funnier you know we've managed to convince mm. people that if they have fine craft beer then they will enjoy our jokes That's... not a lot of matinee <laughs> comedy shows are there? yeah no. <laughs> uh but jen we we're, uh, we got uh, five or six shows a month depending on the month you want to find those just check out meetup uh meetup.com or the meetup app go to the memphis comedy group there and uh and you'll find everything or look us up on facebook at comma comedians and You'll know everything that's going on. We like to have a lot of we like to have a lot of fun. You said earlier I needed to describe my what I do in the most scientific terms possible. So oh, I was well. I was thinking I, I you know well I, I I try to apply a certain a certain pressure a certain cyclical pressure to <laughs> part of the skeleton uh, in order to create uh, essentially what's a fear reaction one of several fear reactions uh induced through rhythms and audible gestures and this kind of thing uh and and what i'm saying is i tickle the funny bone that's what i'm saying oh. that's <laughs> very good very good all right that was for you yeah <laughs> spent like three minutes on and, that and yeah. you've been you've been uh dad's everywhere yeah. you've been, <laughs> nice you've been uh traveling a fair bit more recently as well what where have you gotten out to yeah yeah we've uh we've been getting work in arkansas which is real fun uh little rock's just around the corner we get around the state of tennessee lately for me the past uh year or so is it mostly texas uh we've added texas and alabama but dallas has been nice in dallas and austin a few times Mm. And um, I think just anywhere it, it does, it could be Jackson, Tennessee. It could be anything, but getting to be around fresh crowds and getting to be around people that maybe you don't immediately understand from looking at them uh, is really exciting because you can hone your act to be more relatable to, to, to more and more people. Yeah, um, of course. And I think, you know, the whole gig is, like I said, tickling the funny one. You just want to make people happy and uh, getting to understand how that works for different folks is, is the, really the benefit of travel. Because it works different in different cities, different sure. places, for sure. Different mindsets, different backgrounds, different economic statuses, different jobs, different, you know, whatever, man. Everybody comes at it. How, how much of what you do is improv versus what you what you set down? Not much out? for me. I mean, I'm doing stand-up. I've, I, I like to get with improv groups when they let me just because I think it's a nice, you know, a nice skill to, to punch. Um you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like the act to be more rehearsed. A lot of people have said, I think stand-up is like a rehearsed spontaneity. And you want it to feel that way, certainly. And you want to connect in the moment. So there's a certain amount of adjustment, I think, that happens. But, yeah, I, I prefer to definitely have things written out. And, you know, oh, that's a fun joke. We're going to have Because then you can, you can kind of know when certain things are going to happen. You can build up to them or out of them or whatever. And, and, and then that's you created something for them. Like they came to laugh, they came to experience certain things and then you've, you've got that ready for them to roll through and you can plan it out. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, not a lot of improvisation, I presume, for our, uh, for our final guest. Jim, you're a, you're a chemist by trade. I am. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you, why you wanted to be a chemist? Well, um, why is because it was the, the classes I could pass. Uh, I'm actually, uh, uh, <laughs> that, is, that is the reverse of my, oh, the, the only classes I could pass were chemistry. But <laughs> yeah. So I'm also a third generation industrial, chemical, technical sort of guy. Ah. So the mental defect is genetic. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, I could have been an engineer and made more money, but I, I didn't do that. So uh, Fair enough. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't do that. Uh, so... Uh, what What is it exactly? Can you tell us a bit okay. about your, your, your uh, I, work? I work for a company that makes printing ink. Uh, the, I'm dedicated to one customer that makes uh, flexible packaging, plastic bags for junk food. And I make a lot of it. Well, I think you guys call them chips, but well, it's potato chips. What goes into that? What, what, crisps. Chris, oh, they say crisps. That's yeah, right. We say, we say potato crisps. chips. Yeah. 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 So what, what go, like, how difficult is it to do that? Well, it's... You know, they, they need somebody with a background like mine to be in the picture to help everything work because they're always trying to do stuff faster, better, cheaper. There's always new and different stuff. There's a lot of stuff going away from, uh, like, boxes and cans to bags, and people are talking bad about it, and it, maybe that's the right thing. But these other older options use more energy, use more material, and... That's the way things are going. So, so, so the older ways of of packaging things uses more material. That's right. But so a, you see a, a lot of stuff going to bags. Then yeah. So it, a bag would use yet less material than a can or a. That's right. Just on weight, right? But also on their energy footprint. Huh. But the but the end product is not recyclable. That's correct. One of the ways they make it l- less material is it's mixed plastics. There are multiple layers of plastic. When you touch up, when you pick up a potato chip bag, the outside of what you're touching is plastic. The color is reverse printed, flexographic printing on the on the inside, and then they're all laminate, different layers of plastic laminated together to give it, you know, the shelf life and the food safety and all that. So what you've done is you've made some other chemist's job, who, whose job it is to involve in recycling, Extremely difficult. Much harder. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, we, and we get to tell them exactly how hard we made it. <laughs> Let Ohm help you get the word out on your service, product, or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com. Welcome back to the Dr. Echo podcast. We move on to our news item of the week. Today's article comes from the Washington Post. And the title of the article says, The father of DNA says he still believes in a link between race and intelligence. Oh, that dude. His lab just stripped him of his titles. This is, of course, about uh, Nobel Prize laureate James Watson. He's like 90, right? He is 90 years old. Some Um, of those comments were made when he wasn't 90. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's, uh, yes. (laughs) And uh, more than once. Yeah. So, um he has actually repeatedly made comments uh, about his belief that there is a link between race and intelligence, which uh, in the science, which all scientific studies that have been done have discredited. There is no uh, observable. We've got link. a heckler. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, she's not, you know, yelling, but she got her hands on her head. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Mark. There, no, no observable link in all the multivariate studies that have been uh, done. And, uh, 
despite there being there there is a genetic link between uh, for intelligence. Uh, there's a heritability you can follow it through f- uh, family patterns. A lot of it is uh, nurture rather than nature, but there is definitely a heritability link of intelligence. Mm. But there is no link between race and intelligence. So that's it's it's debunked from the outset. We know through all of the studies that have been done, this is not true. So now let's get into <laughs> into James Watson. He first made these comments in 2007. Uh, to the uh, to Britain's Sunday Times that he was gloomy about the prospect of Africa, i you know moving forward in right. generations because he believed African intelligence was genetically lower than Europeans. Must this, have thought Black Panther was real. <laughs> Got real scared. <laughs> this latest the, the the reason this is so embarrassing uh, is because this latest uh, co- uh, comment was from a documentary, a PBS documentary called American Masters Decoding Watson where it was supposed to kind of put in clarification comments he'd made in 2007, I guess some kind of like redemptive thing. Because after the initial comments he made in 2007, he profusely apologized a few days later. Right. And then in <laughs> in this documentary, you know, when they asked him about what he'd said in 2007, he, down. he said that his unsupported views, uh, he said, have not changed at all since then. (laughs) And so uh, the laboratory that has supported a bulk of his career has revoked all of his his honorary titles. Right. He uh, had an honorary chancellorship back in 2007 from Cold Spring Harbor. Now, what does that mean? Basically, uh, it's like an... Honorary position at the head of the university, honorary, like, like, a, like a figurehead. Basically, did he get the honorary like money? The dean, right? Yeah, it's, it's like a, a figurehead. I'm sure he would have gotten some sort of financial compensation. But well, um, that's the part that's nice now, isn't it? They send a driver. He's in town. He's yeah. got. A, he gets an honorary driver. <laughs> it's a university car. <laughs> Bring the Bentley out. Does he get an honorary expense account too? <laughs> so he was allowed to stay at Cold Spring Harbor after the first set of comments. When he made the apologies, he just sure. had the uh, the figurehead status taken away, uh, and now he's had uh, the remainder of everything from Cold Spring Harbor taken away. He still holds a number of honorary positions at University of Cambridge, University of Oxford, because you know if you. Uh, if you are the discoverer of DNA or one of the part discoverers of DNA, uh, you know, that grants you a lot in the scientific world. Sure. Um, so, Niraj, <laughs> uh, do you want to, I'm going to ask your opinion on some of his other comments that he's made over the years. Here we go. Whenever you interview fat people, you feel bad because you know you're not going to hire them. <laughs> He did not say that. <laughs> There's no way that's Wait, real. This isn't like true false, right? This oh, is wow. no. This is okay. true, <laughs> right? Oh it's just, okay, just check it. I just want to see. Like, he did say that. Just, yeah, because that seems way too out there. <laughs> so in the original movie, uh, in the movie that they made, Jeff Goldblum played this part. Yes, and I want to see Jeff Goldblum play the rest of his life now. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um and, and what. <laughs> One other thing that he said in 2012, he told a scientific conference that having all these women around makes it more fun for the men, but they're probably less effective. It's right. kind of, it's a bit of a distraction. Oh, bro. That's. <laughs> it's so bad. So. It's so sad. In, yeah, I think it's quite a, a sad story because, you know, uh, he's 
tainted his tainted his legacy. Right. Um, but let's hang on a second. He just said that this dude was played by Jeff Goldblum in a movie. Yep. So people already knew he was weird as fuck. Like they. <laughs> <laughs> no, before before they just thought it was Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> but now they realize he was actually very accurate. Like life finds a way. He was he was very method in that movie. <laughs> life finds a way. He's pre- yeah, pre- presented as a as basically philandering, just chasing chasing after women, etc. Not really interested in the science, and that has some truth to it. Based okay. On- okay. So. So he had to use the pickup line all the time about sharing DNA, right? (laughs) (laughs) He probably used the pickup line. Did you know Jeff Goldblum played me in a movie? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That was probably his only. He was American. (laughs) Oh, he was American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Oh, look at that. Me assuming. Out of out of the four people that were involved, he was the only American. So kind of. Well, now we know the problem. Yeah, Yeah, that explains it. Yeah. So so. Have outsourced it. We we can't talk talk about the discovery of dna without of course talking about the controversy that was uh surrounding the discovery itself did you guys understand what he said <laughs> i okay. do know that Wait, right it's i the, think controversy yeah, right? controver- yeah. yeah, yeah. Nailed it. Nailed now, it. now we're just all gonna say it like you what tell us about the controversy mark no, the con- controversy the controversy <laughs> i took british in eighth grade nice <laughs> uh so what's uh, james watson and francis crick uh accredited with the discovery of the double helix structure. Yeah. Uh, but basically there was another group at, uh, King's, at College King's College London, London with, uh, so Maurice Wilkins and another independent investigator, Rosalind Franklin, yeah. uh, had done X-ray crystallography and produced this image. And it was by seeing this image in by nefarious means, effectively uh, some... It was either Maurice Wilkins or uh, one of the university chancellors that... No, so what happened was Franklin did all the experiments. She was... She extracted all the DNA, um, but she was keeping the good DNA for herself and sharing the bad DNA. But when she did the X-ray diffraction uh, experiments, Maurice uh, allowed Watson and Crick to see it after they had seen it presented in a conference in Belgium, I think. And so they basically screwed Franklin out of it. Hang, so, hang so, so what's the good DNA and what's the bad DNA? Yeah. A good, Pure, just a good sample that they, yeah, you know. Oh. There's a A sample and a B sample, and she kept the good one for herself. So... <laughs> Uh, it's taken it a different direction. No, <laughs> she was trying to figure out the structure for for herself and was making some headway, but di- uh, but wasn't as uh, didn't have wasn't as trained in the um, working out the angles between the chemical bonds in the same way that Watson and Crick were. So it was taking her a longer time on her own to do it. When this image was leaked uh, to Watson and Crick, who had been previously, they thought that DNA was tri-stranded that was the model that they proposed it was three strands that were connected together whereas when they saw this image they instantly figured out based on what they previously knew that it was double stranded it was uh, two strands complementary strands that bind to each other in a helic in a helical fashion yeah cool maurice actually was treating her as a, a technician Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of as running her own lab, which is the pretense under which she was hired. 
So then while this was going on, right. Jeff Goldblum's trying to sleep with her or what was going on? Right. Yeah. That part's unsubstantiated. I didn't think right. that was, that was it, but oh, apparently. He was, a, he was a baby at the time, but you oh, know, okay. Jeff Goldblum. Right. <laughs> right. So, so uh, the, the unfortunate thing, Rosalind Franklin never received the Nobel Prize out of the four of them because there are no posthumous Nobel Prizes awarded and it's long seen as a, a slight to uh, to women in science that she yeah. was never able to receive that prize. I see. Um, was the build-up, though, I mean, that she was taking advantage of the process and not really contributing? So it, it's, no, no, no. Did that have to do with it? It's, uh, so it's basically four, four different flawed human scientists, <laughs> uh, you know, very, very accomplished and good scientists, each with their own motivations and flaws. Uh, and the point is that science should not be about hero worship. It should be about the work that is done. And anyone that is taking James Watson's current statements in, into consideration in any legitimate means is just um, embarking on hero worship. They're like, this guy, right. you know, and this is what James Watson is now uh, working off. He's like, I, I was credited with the discovery of DNA. I have a Nobel Prize. People should listen to me about these other subjects that I have no uh, standing in. And so science should never be about hero worship. It should always just be a collaborative incremental process that is based on the fact. That's what I thought when I heard you talk about this. I was like, you could get into uh, moral or ethical or political reasons as to why you would do something. But because it's a scientific issue, I think you could make this decision just on the fact that he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, because, and because he's wrong, this week we dubbed Nobel Prize winner James Watson fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Help us keep the lights on. Go to the oamnetwork.com slash donate. Welcome back to our final section where we take a journal article, explain it to our guests, see how much they can digest and explain right back to myself and Naraj right here. I did great on this the last time I was here. <laughs> it was Mark said earlier in the podcast that it was the best he'd ever heard anyone do it. I was uh, speaking about another Guest, I'm sorry. I'm so- I don't remember. I'm sorry. My my core beliefs led me to believe that you were talking about me. Today's article comes from the journal Cell, uh, from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. The first author is Benjamin Oakes, and the anchor author is David Savage. And today's article is titled "CRISPR-Cas9 Circular Permutants as Programmable Scaffolds for Genome Modification." For, from the title alone, I've picked a difficult one for you today. Sounds like from, it. From the title, well, you know, I did such a good job last time. From the, t- from the title <laughs> alone, what can you guys pick up? CRISPR-Cas9 circular permutants as programmable scaffolds for genome modification. Mm-hmm. CRISPR is the, the gene editing <clears throat> Correct. tool. And Cas9 uh, got me. It's Yeah, CRISPR-Cas9 one, is one, 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 one thing. Okay. So that, that is the, the, the tool. It's a brand. For, and then the mm-hmm. scaffolding is is all of the things that hold up our genetic structure. It's how they all, like my girlfriend's in speech graduate school for speech language pathology. I help her study. So like scaffolding seems to pop up in every genetic conversation ever. It's like, this is the scaffolding for this, for, for this system. And so, yeah, just think of it, how you would think of actual scaffolding right. for a building. So when you're, we're talking about CRISPR-Cas9 scaffold, it's like a protein, sca- it's a scaffold of the tool itself. Uh, so, this is a so this is a protein that has revolutionized genome editing genome modification uh, oh you're telling us now. across fields yeah, yeah. so uh, 
Because I thought it was uh, the techno-organic virus from the future in X-Men. I don't get that. I don't get that reference. I'm sorry. I thought if you were going to say nine words in a row, I didn't understand the one that, that makes fire. the one that makes them not mutants anymore. No, no, no. That was the cure. It's uh, the thing that makes Cable's arm all shiny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Back he to has the real world, though. right? So, so it's a it's a protein, and uh, it exists in the bacterial immune system. It's basically how bacteria invade from you know, prevent invading pathogens from causing any harm to them. Uh, and so what it does is it cuts the uh, it cuts specific sequences of DNA, and so that system has been harnessed to use in uh, potential medical or agricultural systems. Anything where you can deliver this protein, you deliver basically a target sequence along with it, and then it finds that sequence in the genome, finds that sequence in DNA, makes a cut there, and you can do all sorts of editing. You can you can delete things you want to delete. You can try and knock things in at specific sites. It's an incredibly versatile piece of technology. Would you call this splicing? That's what I was literally about that. Splicing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is because uh, somebody Splice. else played Bioshock. Splicing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> splicing pieces together. Yeah. Uh, so it's incredibly versatile. But uh, one of its one of the things is it's at the moment you can't. Uh, it wouldn't be authorized for um, medical use. In if uh, delivering it to a to a human because it would always be on if you're do, trying to deliver it in a genetic means. Um, and what I mean is like if you if you deliver the DNA that encodes for this protein, that protein would be in the cell and it wouldn't turn off. It would uh, just continually right. be looking in theory for p- pieces of DNA to cut. It might not necessarily make any off-target cuts because it's not got its uh, barcode thing to tell it where to go, but you have a protein with the potential to cut DNA that is that w- it would be continually there in cells. Is, is this tool a microcomputer of any kind, or is this actually like sending signals into this the is, central nervous system? This, this is a protein, so this is like Wait, any protein you produced in your the, body. But the tool, the, same. The, the, the first one, <laughs> the CRISPR Cas9. The CRISPR Cas9 is it's the actual protein. It's, it's a, a protein. Yeah. So they synthesized the protein, developed that, and then put the protein into our so, so the protein, uh, oper- uh, it can be produced in exactly the way any of your body's proteins uh, can be, through exactly the same systems. So you could deliver, if you were able to deliver the DNA uh, of that protein in a cassette to the cells in your body, your own cells would start producing it, oh. start producing that protein. So you just introduce so that. You don't need to go through a synthesis procedure in like a, a lab, although you can synthesize the protein if you want it to be around for a short period of time you could synthesize the protein separately and deliver that is this protein naturally occurring in bacteria yes okay so we're uh, so we're harnessing uh, something that's used in the bacterial immune system so so, uh what this group uh, wanted to see is basically if they could uh they could harness this this protein and cause it to be activatable in a certain uh, certain way so doing protein engineering to see if they could make it an activatable protein you turn it on and off is what i'm hearing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what they did With is switch so what they Sorry. did is this uh, thing called circular permutation which is this protein has a start point and an end point and okay. they wanted to uh, and you can 
you can use this method basically where you change the start and end points. And most of the time that won't work, but a protein has different regions, different domains. You can make it work in certain instances. So they built this big library to work out areas they could change the start and end points. And that would indicate areas uh, that they could maybe attach a linker to. So they identified 77 sites on this uh, large protein that uh, they were able to find still worked if if you attached a linker at one if you made this did these circular permutations use these linkers uh so they found 77 sites in three of the pro if three of the domains of this overall protein so they made all of these different variants to try and figure out you know uh if they could have a version that was turned off and four of th- so four of them so four of the pro- uh the variants worked even though the n terminus c terminus different place four of them worked to a high enough level where they could go forward with it and one of them in particular cp199 is what they determined uh appeared to be the most active basically and so what they did is they this uh, this specific uh variant cp199 where they've got this this site they started introducing small sequences small amino acid sequences to that site because they knew it shouldn't disrupt the protein function. Okay. So uh, there's things called proenzymes. And so those are enzymes in your body. Insulin is a perfect example. It's first produced as proinsulin and then it gets cleaved and uh, it gets cleaved by another enzyme and then forms insulin and that insulin is active. So they're using a similar principle here for turning it on. So there's proteases that can make these cuts and basically rearrange the protein slightly. They make a cut to, cut in this area. So it's all cutting. The, the CRISPR-Cas9 overall cuts the DNA. This protease that we're dealing with now cuts your protein. That but it's all, it's all chemicals, though. They're not using scissors or anything like that. Not not using scissors. Okay, it's just protein. Scissors. What's this chemical? Protein. What, what scissors. is the button though? Yeah. What what is the introduction? What do how protein do you scissors get, look how like? How do you get that to occur in <laughs> nice. in someone's DNA? So, uh, what's the actual trigger? So it depends what your what the protease is. So they they were wanting to show that you could en- engineer this CRISPR Cas protein for all sorts of uses. So first of all, uh, there's this virus called a tobacco etch virus, and that contains a certain protease. What does it do? The tobacco etch virus. It, yeah, it sounds interesting. It, Are you addicted to tobacco? <laughs> <laughs> the tobacco itch virus? Well, if you think, if, if, if you think about uh, what is probably one of the most uh, profitable crops sure. in the world, tobacco, a virus that attacks tobacco. Is that would be bad. For, for certain companies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> great activist well and for any yeah <laughs> and for anybody who makes money off tobacco <laughs> so uh there's a very well-known uh protease and sequence interaction uh so they intro so this protease from the tobacco virus comes in and it cleaves this sequence so they put that sequence into the enzyme and then what they showed is that they were able to when they uh treated uh, with this protease, that they could get cleavage of this sequence and activity of their uh, activity of their CRISPR-Cas enzyme. 
And so what that kind of proves is that you've had something that switched on. Now you've added this protease. It's it, uh, switched on. It's, fr it's started off. Now it's on. So what they did, uh, what they did then is tried some other agriculturally relevant, um, agriculturally relevant uh, proteases from different viruses. Hold up, did it work? And it worked. The tobacco thing. The tobacco thing worked. All right. So by introducing a bacteria, you then triggered. So what you would what you would do, yeah, you, by introducing the sequence, you've then got something that would only turn on in the presence of this particular protease, which is present in this particular right. virus. And so then they showed that you could, you could do that with a bunch of other um, a bunch of other proteases that were from other viruses that infect you know different um, agricultural crops like plums, turnips, potatoes. Uh, so there were proteases from those viruses, and then they also repeated the process process with a set of proteases from flavivirus uh, genus. Now that includes. Viruses such as Zika virus and West Nile virus, dengue virus, they contain proteases. Okay. They incorporated a, a, a small sequence that those proteases would cleave. And so then you've got a CRISPR-Cas DNA cutting enzyme that only turns on when the uh, dengue virus protease is present or the Zika virus protease is present. So they put that into mammalian cells, found that it worked, found that you could turn on uh, the activity when you added uh, these proteases from this virus and also when you mimicked infection. I got two things. One, so that it's like they're training the immune system or they're training the DNA to act like the immune system. They're trained. Yeah. They're basically training uh, this specific tool that was, uh, that is used to act like an immune system, uh, 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 I guess like an augmented immune system that targets some specific thing. Right. Second thing. Uh, okay, we can fight diseases with it. Can we also change stuff, like in plants and people and animals and all that? Like, can you can you because it's genetic modification, yeah? Right? So you, it's core. You, so yeah, so. you could so you could already do that with the CRISPR-Cas tool, right? But what you can do with this system is you can make it much highly, uh, much more highly targeted, right? Invisible. So you could say, I only want my fingers to burst into flames when I snap and then off again like that, right? Would that be? <laughs> it's more, exactly. It's more, <laughs> it will only light up when you're infected with dengue virus. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. That was my thing. It's really, it's really specific. I mean, but like, well, I mean, then you'll know. Right. But at least you know. You're but to, right. to your point though, like a certain live culture or live viruses and vaccines are in, I don't know how the influence of, vaccine works but apparently it has some form of live virus in it this is this is basically the same thing on a genetic level so uh what this it would be unlikely that this would be used anytime soon for any medical applications because it's still too early with the technology but for agri let's say for agriculture where we don't have to worry about killing someone if you uh I think I, can, I think I can think up a really good medical sense. application for this. Okay. It'd be a brand new strain of weed and they'll just be like, smoke this one when you got dengue virus, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> I'm sure in all of LA, I can find a weed strain named dengue. Virus. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> 
but as, this one cures herpes. So okay. they specifically have to introduce that in. So, but but this would be more targeted real world applications to plant, yeah. plants, not humans. And Jim, I'm just wondering, does this mean you can use this to make sure our hot pocket sleeves? Don't give us E. cola. Like, is that is... <laughs> dango no, pockets? No, how, would, how would you package this? <laughs> yeah. no, no, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna pour E. coli in there and make you so you can't catch it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> it would come free with the hot yeah. pockets. So, so this has been quite a difficult one, but I do. I do want to see what you guys have taken in. So, uh, can you take me back through uh, what this group did and uh, what this technology means? You're looking at me. What's that? <laughs> well, it's just because you're on the left. Yeah, you've got the best shot. He's, you know? he's on the left, y'all. Got, he's got the so. side. He knew like what that first acronym was right off the bat. I, I think it's he's also got maybe best. because you're the employed scientist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'll go. I don't go first. I don't care. So, um, so uh, essentially, they've uh, isolated a protein or found a protein in um, in DNA that already existed that didn't really get activated for whatever reason. And the only way to change that is by introducing certain bacteria or viruses or elements. So almost, uh, so, so it was a protein that already existed in bacteria and its original version was activated, but it was always on. Okay. So it was on, in, it was on when you wouldn't want it to be on. So they found a way to turn it off and have it inducibly turned on. Copy. So then once it gets in there, then the body starts doing it, or then our then our DNA starts activating it on its own. It gets act yeah, it, gets, it gets activated act on a certain signal. So be that like this particular let's this particular protease that I'm talking about, it's a signal to tell it to turn on, basically. Right. In you get an infection from this virus or your plant gets an infection from this virus. Here is the signal. You've already got the protein present to turn it on, and then and then it and then it cuts the DNA of the incoming of whatever it's targeted to, the incoming virus or whatever. All right. So, Doug, anything to add? Honestly, man, when you first said splicing, or when I think I said it, I just started thinking about the game Bioshock. So I could tell you about that. <laughs> uh, well, you, you're in a plane crash, and then you crash down into the ocean, and there's this light tower in the middle, and you go in there, and there's all this kind of idolatry towards what looks like a, you know, I don't know, like it's a Americana. 50s. Yeah, but it's like it's like hard fisted, <laughs> yeah. like the man must work, the parasite will kill. But this guy looked like Howard Hughes looking motherfucker, yeah, like it's... lording over everything, and then you go down there and it's just all hell is broken it's what would have happened if we fled the russians right, in the 50s and right. built an underwater city yeah yeah it's an underwater city that's important thank you yeah so you go down and you're in an underwater city you think awesome cool but then everything's gone to hell in a handbasket there's blood on the walls there's people running around you find out there's splicers like they found this compound on the on the ocean floor from a slug and they they started injecting it in people and they figured out how to change all kind of stuff you could splice your nose just with like some cream or something you could flick your fingers a fire would come out your ice blast you a lot of cool powers it's real fun <laughs> and then you gotta you gotta go deal with the guy and then it turns out oh my god you're his kid and then you have to kill him for some reason like because he tells you to because it's some kind of programming it's really messed up and then you got to go fight the dude who was actually a different dude but now is the this big dude and then when you kill him then all these depending on the types of choices you made all these little girls live or die god damn it he's nailed it again <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what the casper nine <laughs> does it like, so, 
two in a row. I mean, just <laughs> out here living, you know. <laughs> so I think we can safely say that I have failed today in my science communication <laughs> aims, but I will give uh, you guys a chance to redeem, uh, redeem yourselves or redeem me. Uh, I ask, of course, each of my guests to bring a fact with them uh, for the show. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, you, Jim. Do you have a fact for me today? If you walk to a grocery store, buy some milk, bring it home, and drink enough of the milk to replace the calories that it took to walk to the grocery store, your energy footprint would be higher than if you had just driven to the grocery store because it takes so much energy to put milk in the grocery store. Wait, so you went, you're driving to the grocery store and not buying milk in the second That's scenario? That's right. Yeah. Oh. So Driving takes up more energy yeah, of the total Dis- energy di- than creating less. and distributing milk. But no. Less. Driving. Di- yeah. Right. Di- creating, distributing milk costs a lot of energy that not the way i do it (laughs) that reminds me of this other game was called sim farm figure out (laughs) (laughs) lactation joke uh (laughs) no that's it was it was it was a bad example it's hard to get your head around. No, no, I, 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 I get it. I, it turns you, it turns everything makes, on your head, doesn't it? I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Like you, the whole way you think about, oh, driving is bad, milk is good, but then if you, right, think about so it. But then if you, if you want, if you want to reduce your energy footprint, you're just thinking. Is that just thinking about that one container of milk? Because presumably, you know, the delivery of milk to the store is not a delivery of one gallon of milk that's right it's, it's delivery of it's like the whole creation processing refrigeration everything that it takes to get it there so that's it's if you want to reduce your energy footprint not driving might not be the best option but there might be great opportunities in the way we get our food moved around and the way we process it and like if it's locally generated it's different than if it's shipped from far away, which may be better and may be worse. It's worked on a per carton basis. Okay. On a a per carton basis. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That took me a second. So I guess that he's saying there could be big gains in places we maybe didn't expect. I missed missed that joke the first time around. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, that's great. That's that's an interesting uh, interesting nugget. But what if you don't drink milk or drive your car? Then you win. (laughs) <laughs> well, if we just sit still and don't do anything, we will probably, maybe, sometimes use less energy. <laughs> I and drink I think- a lot of milk and I walk to the grocery store. <laughs> and no, true. I mean, just I live across the street from from the from the uh, pav- pavilions. Water bottle drop. Sorry, I, I lived across the street from the pavilions in Santa Monica and uh, Robertson in West Hollywood. And it's it's about a fifteen so you live second in California walk. and you hate the earth. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. No, but he also drives, so he's in the middle of your Venn diagram. Just but not to the grocery store to get milk. Just other places. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm saving and losing. That's right. But not losing completely. Right. (laughs) But saving (laughs) less than you thought you lost when you first looked at what you were saving. That's so lonely. (laughs) Lee, Lee, you may you may be saving and losing, but do you have a a winning fact for us today? I think I have a winning fact. I really enjoy this one. Um, So I like raccoons, 
I think okay. I think they're cool. Uh, and then you know, Rocket Raccoon. Who doesn't like that guy? But uh, so people think Mark. raccoons wash. They, people think they wash their hands, right? Everyone thinks that raccoons wash their hands. They think it's the cutest looking thing in the world. The truth is that raccoons don't wash their hands. They don't have taste buds. So what raccoons are actually doing with their hands is they're tasting their food. And they're finding out whether or not it's okay to eat. Because when they put water on their hands, their pores open up dramatically. And it allows them to, in a way, feel and taste their food at the same time before they put it in their mouth. Which explains also why they rummage through garbage. Because they're trying to find out if what they're getting is, if they can eat it. They don't know until they, use their hands until they put their, their hands mouth, on it. Right. And they have to first get their hands wet before they can do that. No way. That's great. Also, they're freaking geniuses because if they get to your trash can and you just put a simple, like, like I don't know, like a rock on top of it and they can't get it open in two seconds, they'll go to the next trash can. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you got to get these pesky raccoons out. No, they're just opportunists. They don't care. <laughs> trash pandas. Little geniuses. Oh, man, what. don't let Rocket hear you say that. I went to that Marvel Live thing in South Haven. Yeah, I got a couple of buddies that do that. Oh, well, yeah. your buddies are talented as hell yeah. because the dude who played Rocket straight up pulled some hardcore wrestling moves from a, from a like from a flat like he was standing up flat no trampoline nothing jumped up took a guy down by his knees man it was ridiculous stunts are, stunts are fun and now. he did that because somebody called him a trash panda <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't call raccoons trash pandas yeah do you have any uh do you have a uh, fact that is is or isn't about trash pandas no it's not about <laughs> it's not about any of that yeah 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 it's about language uh so you you know you came in. There's a bunch of there's an atrium atrium atrium. Yeah, they have like five yeah, atriums, like nine here. atriums here, and Crazy. there's another word for that. When I was telling Jim about how to get here and stuff, I was saying that it's. Uh, I'm just going to spell the word, and then we'll get into pronouncing it in a second. There's a F O Y E R. Is uh, is is like another word for atrium, right? And in my head, I was like, yeah, it's in the third foyer. Like that's what I thought. Apparently, that is not how you say it. It is foyer. Maybe in your country. Yeah. What do they say? In <laughs> what do they say in England? Actually, if you work in real estate, that's how you say it. Foyer. Foyer. Yeah. <laughs> foyer. 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 So, I say foyer all right. Too. So the Southerners foyer. and yeah. the Brits can agree on one thing, I guess. <laughs> that's right. Because it was, I, man, and it's I was. probably the only thing. Yeah. I think. So I, I find that out mind blown because I was always just like, yeah, it's a foyer, you know, no problem. <laughs> You always meet Grammy and Grampy in the, in the foyer. You know, that's when they, that's where they come in. But then I found out there's another thing. You grow up in the South, you hear about you got like a cloth or a rag or something. You got to wipe stuff up with. That's a chamois, chamois cloth, something like that, you know? <laughs> now, I just thought that was S-H-A-M-M-Y because what yeah. the hell else would it be? All right, thank you. It's got an eye at the end, right? It's has an X. It's a whole a diff- what? It's a whole thing. Oh, Shamu. Yeah, it's spelled like Shamu. It's right. E-U-X. Right. It's French. So here's this. But there's another one. There's a whole thing where it's like Shammy is actually a word. C-H-A, I think I-M-O-S, something like that. Uh, and and I thought that meant, that was said Camois or something. I don't know. Camois. Cam, camas. I don't know. But uh, it turns out, no, that's, that's Shamois. That's how you say that. And then when I figured that out, I understood that the name Sham Wow was fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. 
Great fact. <laughs> <laughs> Have I done it again, sir? Wait, okay, I think I got it wrong too. It, it's it's, it's C H A M O I X, right? Is that it? That's okay. That's the one. It's yeah. not the E U. Well, it's, it's the yeah. As, do you think, from a person who didn't know how to pronounce either of those words, <laughs> that he would actually be able to spell them? <laughs> you got you got the intent of the fact, right? For us, right. It's most of it's there. Thing. Yeah. So that so, so that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, thank you guys for coming on. I do, of course, give all my guests the chance to plug. Whatever it is they want to plug. Uh, so I'm going to start with uh, with you, Doug. Have you got anything to plug today? Yeah, I would like uh, the ShamWow guy to get his job back. That's my number one thing. No, I'm uh, I'm kidding. Uh, comic comedians, if, if you're in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, we'd love to come see you at one of our live shows. We have a great time. We do a lot of stand-up. Uh, check out Comma Comedians on Facebook or uh, get meetup.com or the Meetup app and join the Memphis Comedy Memphis is Funny group there. Perfect. And Lee, anything to... Yeah, actually, I, I'll plug two things real quick. Um, one is my uh, good friend, Jonathan Blancett. He uh, is uh, partners in a whiskey distiller here in Memphis, Tennessee called Blue Note Bourbon. Uh, they are making craft bourbon here in Memphis, Tennessee, and it's in all your local liquor stores. You should go out and get that. And then also um, got a guy, Freddie G. Orlando. He's doing Death of a Salesman out in Hollywood. You can go online and get your tickets on Facebook. Uh, check him out. Just look up Freddie G. Orlando on uh on Facebook and check out Death of a Salesman premiering in Hollywood, I believe, going off in, uh, he's going off in March. And right. you can contribute to his GoFundMe page. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Jim, anything you want to plug? I didn't bring something for that, but go see Doug's comedy show. Yeah, Perfect. our comedy show now. Mark's one of the guys, right. man. Dolls. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's the perfect plug for you to, for you to select. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's it for today's show. Thank you guys so much for being a part of it. Uh, Do we clap? No, no need okay. to clap. All Just right. say... Good, good night. Good night. Dr. Heckle is an OAM Network production available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com. Recorded at the Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee. Your host was Mark Brimble. Guests were Lee Gifford, Jim Ferris, and Doug Gillen. Music by Kip Yulhorn. The show was produced by Mark Brimble, Hunter Sandlin, and Gil Worth. Special thanks to Lauren Riggins and the Surf Memphis Podcast. Find us on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or if you have questions, comments, or would like to get in touch about appearing on the show, or topics you'd like us to cover, email us at drhecklepod at gmail.com. Theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.